right, we are in this series called uh, We Want a King, where we're looking at the first three kings in Israel's history. And so far we've seen Saul as king, and he came, and, then, uh, and, and he was king, and he was indifferent to God, and eventually he dies. And the last few weeks we've been looking at David as king and what it looks like for him to be king. And, and, and so far in the story we've kind of seen that David had to deal with a mini, mini civil war. And then we kind of saw the peak of, of ki- David's kingship last week in his loving kindness to Mephibosheth. Today though, uh, we are, we're going to get into a horrible story in David's life. It's in 2 Samuel 11. In 2 Samuel 12, it's one of the, the worst stories in David's life. It's one of the, it is the worst sin of David's life, in my opinion. And, and so here's what today's going to look like as we get into this story that kind of catalogs the decline of David as king. And it's a, kind of the beginning, actually, of the decline of David as king. What we're going to do is we're going to go through 2 Samuel 11 and about a, a third or a half of 2 Samuel 12, and we're going to just let the passage preach to us. As we go through it, I'm going to stop us a lot, explain the passage, give some light commentary myself on the passage, but I I really feel like this is the sort of passage that preaches itself, and so rather than me kind of say, here's my five or ten points or whatever amount of points from reading this passage, I kind of want to just go through this passage slowly and together and give some light commentary and let the passage be what preaches to us this morning rather than me. Does that make sense? So we'll be in the passage the whole time this morning. Uh, one thought uh, before we get into the, the passage. Uh, today we're, we're going to be talking about some negative and sinful uh, sexual behaviors. And I think it's important on the front end for us to make the distinction between negative sexual behavior and human sexual desire. And the reason I think that's important is because often in the church, we lump all sexual desire in to a sinful or a bad category. But sexual desire is much more an everyday human thing. It is a human thing to have sexual desire. To be human is to have sexual desire. And I know even today some are going, well, I don't have sexual desire. I would argue there are aspects of your sexuality that you're not seeing because of how your sexuality has been defined to you that are part of your sexual desires as a human. And so I want us to be careful to see uh, that sexual desire itself is a very human thing. And sexual desire itself is not necessarily evil. Now, the sexual behaviors that we participate in because of our sexual desire, it's often something God wants us to steward in a certain way, in a certain context. And, And how we steward those behaviors, often that becomes sin for us. And so just to also be clear, I'm making a differentiation between sexual desire and lust, right? Jesus teaches us that lust is sin, but he doesn't teach us that just... Everyday human sexual desire is sin. Okay, so sexual desire itself is not sin, which I know it might be confusing for some of us to hear that. Maybe some, none of us have heard that before, but, it, but it's simply true. It's part of how God made us, 
And, and again, the reason why I, I want to say that on the front end is because we're talk, today we're going to be talking about negative sexual behaviors, sinful sexual behaviors. And for me, in my experience growing up in the church, it has been very easy for me to lump guilt and shame on myself, not for my uh, sinful sexual behaviors, but simply for my human sexual desire. And I don't want us doing that this morning. Now, I do want us hearing from the Lord in the ways that we need to hear from the Lord. And I do want us to be convicted by our sin where we should be convicted by sin. But I just wanted to make that distinction on the front end as we go into this to know that your human sexual desire is blessed by God. Like, God has made your human sexual desire. Now, I think sin twists that, and sometimes our sexual desires are twisted by sin and under the power of sin, and that, I think God would have us repent from that. But human sexual desire, base level, is not necessarily sinful. Does that make sense? I just want to say that on the front end before we get into a very serious story that talks about some sinful sexual behaviors, okay? So, let's hop into the text uh, we're going to be in verse 1 of 2 Samuel 11. Follow along with me. It will be on the screen. We're going to just read the first verse and stop. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. David remained at Jerusalem. So right away, here's something we're seeing in the text. In verse 1, that the author wants us to see. Notice the author starts off the chapter saying, In the springtime when kings went to battle, David didn't. David stayed back. The author is clearly wanting us to see that this story that's about to follow happened when David was abdicating his responsibility as king. When he was saying, hey, Joab, my general, he can go out and he can cover all the bases of war. He could do what I'm responsible for. And so this story starts off with David abdicating his responsibilities, not going out to battle as he should as a king to represent his people, to care for his people. But he's back at the palace hanging around. And we see what starts to happen in verses 2 and 3. It happened... Late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch and was, and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Let's, let's pause there. So, uh, sorry, a little distracted there. Uh, I don't know who whistled, but we're not going to do that, okay? That's, I think that's demeaning to Bathsheba already. Um, so uh, what we're, um, and I, I don't mean any shame there. I don't know what the story behind that whistle was. But, uh, so David is hanging around uh, at the palace. He's kind of moping around. He's up on the roof, which is probably the highest vantage point in the city, and he sees a, a woman bathing. 
And so something we have to know right away, David probably sees her because he has the highest vantage point, and he probably sees her, sees her because there's a lot of bathing that was being done outside at that time. Not everybody bathed inside like, uh, like we do today. There was certainly some bathing inside, but a lot of the bathing was done outside. And David sees her, she thinks she's beautiful, and so he gets one of his servants and he says, hey, 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 who, who, is, who is that? And you can even tell this servant, whoever this one was that talked to David, you can tell that this servant already is kind of like, uh, hey man, uh, that, that's Bathsheba. She's the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah. It's almost like the, the, the servant knows what David might be up to. Like the servant knows that David uh, is kind of starting to lust here. He's starting to be sketchy. And so the servant is making clear to David, hey, that lady, she's married. You don't, you, you don't need, you shouldn't look at her. You shouldn't think, like this, it, she's not your wife, David. She's married to Uriah. David doesn't seem to care as we see in verses 4 and 5. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman could... Did I skip? I'm sorry. Did I skip a chapter? I'm sorry. So I'm just going to reread it. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying himself from her uncleanliness... Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Let's stop there for a second. So David sends servants to, uh, David sends servants to go uh, take her. Uh, one second, Vanessa, would, would someone go hang with Vanessa maybe and talk to, this is my friend Vanessa in the back. Would someone, hi Vanessa. You're not scary at all. We, we, we are happy you're here, Vanessa. But would you hang with someone in the lobby and talk for a bit? Um, all right. So what ends up happening in the story, sorry, I'm thrown off, guys, clearly. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm not that good of a speaker <laughs> that can just, like, deal with the heckling. I'm not a stand-up comedian. So... Um, and she, not that she was heckling, uh, I'm sorry. But uh, so anyways, let's get back into the story. So we have this, so David sees her, he asks his servant about her, he finds out who she is, and then he sends servants to go and to take her. He brings her to the palace, Bathsheba comes to the palace, he brings her into his bedroom, and then David has sex with Bathsheba. I, I, I want to talk about this at a little bit more length here. Growing up, I heard this story taught as adultery. That's how I heard it growing up. The only problem with categorizing this as adultery is adultery is never the word used in this story to describe what happened here. I'm not the first to say this, uh, but what I think David did here was a form of rape. Okay, I think what David did here was a form of rape, which might be a lot for you to hear. Maybe you haven't heard that about this story. I know when I first heard that about this story, I, I really wrestled with that. But, but let's, let's look at the details of the story. When a king calls upon someone, takes her from her home, brings her into his bedroom, in that time and place, she did not have agency. She did not have the ability uh, to say no. 
If, if, if kings were told no, kings killed the people that told them no. And so this woman Bathsheba, she does not have a free no. She, she does not have a, a valid consent to give to David. And so if a woman is incapable, in, incapable of giving a valid consent, then that is a form of rape. Because of all the details we have in this story, that Bathsheba was taken, that word take there in the ESV, the Hebrew has some strong connotations there in the original Hebrew, that Bathsheba was taken, that we're going to find out Uriah, her husband, is a good man. We're going to find out that she mourns for her husband. And we're going to find out that God sees what David did here as evil. All of those details in the story make it hard for me to believe that Bathsheba had any sort of real agency here in the story and that she had a free no to give to David. David is abusing his power here, and in my mind, he's at the very least sexually coercing, sexually exploiting, if not flat out committing a form of rape, which I think he is doing. And so I want us to see David's sin for what it is. It, it's sad to me that, that sometimes people have a hard time seeing the severity of what David did here to Bathsheba. Or, or often people will just define it as something altogether different than what David did to Bathsheba here. And it, it makes me wonder, perhaps our own sexual behaviors need to be reexamined ourselves. And I mean for the married, too. Sometimes, even in marriage, we find things like sexual coercion and worse seeping into marriage because we think we're entitled to their body. And so, uh, to be clear, I'm not trying to preach some uh, progressive vision of this passage. I know that's kind of a fear of the church today, and it's a a rightful fear to go, hey, everybody's just trying to do what the culture says. I'm I'm not trying to do that. Like, just come on a week when I talk about celibacy, okay? And you'll be like, okay, this is too conservative, whatever you want to say. What I'm trying to do is preach what I see actually happening in the passage, What I'm trying to do is to put it in language that we can understand. I'm trying to call out what I see here. And I think it's important for us to see David's sin for what it is. It helps us to see God's word. It helps us to know what God is communicating. I pray, I pray that none of us have done here what David has done here. But I do know that a lot of us have sexual sin and sexual brokenness in our past and in our lives. And I I just don't want us to make excusing David's sin in some way be the way we get out of our own guilt for our sexual sin and brokenness. The way to get out of our own guilt is to let the Lord cover our guilt. Repent, turn to God, look to reconcile, repair. And so... For the single and the married in this room, I think before we go on in the story, we, we, have, we have to decide to choose God's vision for our sexuality rather than our vision for our sexuality. Because that's what David chose. He chose his own vision for his sexuality in the story. And so David, uh, he commits a grievous sin here that I think is a form of rape. 
and Bathsheba gets pregnant. Let's see what happens next in the story, verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. Let's pause there for a second. So David right away, now that he knows that Bathsheba is pregnant, he decides, I'm going to cover up this sin. I'm going to work out a plan to cover up this sin. And so he invites Uriah back to Jerusalem, talks to Uriah, says, hey, how's the war going? Uriah tells him. And then David says, hey, stay the night. Go wash your feet at your house. And he even sends a present along with Uriah. I don't know, maybe to encourage that, to encourage him going home. Because David's plan is this, that Uriah would go home, that he would have sex with Bathsheba. And so when Bathsheba was revealed to be pregnant, they could hide it. They could say, this was really Uriah's baby, not David's. Well, let's see what Uriah does next in verse 9. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord. It did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab the servants, and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall then I go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah, Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. All right, so David hatches this plan to cover up his sin. And Uriah, he doesn't go home. Uriah sleeps out with the servants where David's servants sleep right outside the palace or somewhere around the palace. We don't, I don't know exactly. We find out that Uriah is a pretty virtuous person. David is trying to cover up his sin, but because of Uriah's virtue, he can't. Uriah goes, listen, I, I want, sure, it'd be great to go home, but I can't go home while the ark of the Lord... The manifest presence of God is out at the battlefield and Joab, my general, and all of my brothers in arms are out there sleeping in the open field. I can't, I can't go home and, and have a good time and, and eat and drink and, and, and lie with my wife and love my wife. I, I, I can't do that, David. And so David, you can almost hear his exasperation. He's just like, okay, like, stay here while I figure out what to do with you. And so in verse 13, we see David takes another crack at trying to cover up his sin. And David invited him, that's Uriah, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Okay, so... What happens next in the story is David invites Uriah to the palace. They start drinking together. David gets him drunk, and David's like, okay, if this guy's drunk, he'll go home. He'll sleep with his wife. My sin will be covered up. So they get drunk. David sends him out of the palace. Uriah is so virtuous that even when he's drunk, he, he does the virtuous thing. He doesn't go home. He stays with the servants. 
and sleeps in the same place he slept the night before. Uriah is a good man. The story takes a dark turn, another dark turn next, in verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. So, none of David's cover-up plans work. He sends a message to his general Joab. He says, put Uriah where the fighting is the hardest and draw back so he's killed. And so... That's what Joab does. He sends Uriah to where the valiant men of the place they're fighting are fighting. And, and also other people die in the process. Other Israelites die in the process. And Uriah also dies. David is willing to kill to cover up his sin. To cover up the proof of his sin. To cover up his sin coming out into the open. I find it really interesting that that both David and Saul, they want to kill the shame and proof of their sin. If you remember with Saul, Saul was told he wasn't going to be be king anymore, that his sons weren't going to become king after him, that God was going to remove him from the kingship. And, And Saul acted indifferent to it, but then we, as the anointing was put on David, and as the anointing was, was more clearly that David was going to be the next king of Israel, Saul all of a sudden wanted to cover the proof of his guilt, the proof of his sin as king, him being removed. And the way he was willing to do it was to kill David. He tries to kill David a, a bunch of times. He even tries to kill his own son at one point because his son won't help him kill David. Saul is willing to kill in order, up, in order to cover up his, the proof of his shame and guilt and sin. And David is no different. David is willing to kill Uriah to cover up the proof and guilt of his sin and his shame. This is what two men with absolute power do in order to cover up their sin. Which leads me to just ask myself and ask us, what are we willing to do to cover up our sin? Perhaps we should realize there is no life found in covering up our sin. There's no life found in covering up our guilt. There's no life found in covering up our shame. Well, what happens next in the story is Joab sends a very deliberate message to David, letting him know that the deed is done. David, when he gets the message, you can tell he's almost happy about it. And Joab, who even anticipated David to be a little bit angry, David isn't angry. David kind of says to the messenger, like, hey, no worries about the battle losses. Go home. Everything's fine. Carry on. And then the news gets to Bathsheba, and we see a heartbreaking scene in verse 26. When the wife of Uriah heard 
that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This, this scene's horrible. This was probably a surprise to Bathsheba. I'm sure David didn't tell Bathsheba, hey, I'm going to make it so your husband dies. So Bathsheba gets the no- news that Uriah is dead, and she laments him. I think this is a sign that Bathsheba loved Uriah. I think it's clear that Uriah loved Bathsheba. And you have David's sin just taking and taking and taking and doing what it wants despite the consequences. We've seen hints of this in David's story so far. Once her mourning was over, David brings her into into the palace and he marries her to fully cover up the sin. Now when it's seen that she's pregnant, David can say, yes, this is... This is my baby. David was willing to kill to cover up his sin. He didn't care who he hurt in the process. What was wrong. He didn't care what was wrong with what he did in the process. And, and the first time in the story, we actually see God's uh, opinion of what David is doing. And what, God, what it says there is that God is displeased with David. Some translations say that God thought what David did was evil. God finds what David did through these course of actions disgusting and evil and wrong and sinful. And so God decides to send his prophet Nathan, who we met a couple weeks ago briefly, to go tell David about his sin. Let's see how God approaches David through Nathan. Uh, Chapter 12, verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought, and he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man. And he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So let's stop there for a second. God, very cleverly, wants David to see the injustice of what he's done. So he gives Nathan a story to tell David. He says, David has done all this wrong. Tell him this story so that David can clearly see the injustice of what he's done. And see how David reacts in verses 5 and 6. David, who thinks this is a real story, says, Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore to the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. So the story does exactly what God wants it to do. It, it makes David see the injustice of what this rich man in the story did to this poor man. And so David says, this guy deserves punishment. This guy deserves to die. This guy needs to repay what he's do- for what he's done. Now that David has noticed and pointed out the injustice 
of the rich man in the story, Nathan responds, verse 7. I'm going to read a longer section here. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the, uh, with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. Nathan eloquently and ferociously points out David's sin. And he declares the punishments and the, and the consequences that are going to come because of David's sin. His own house is going to rise up to him. He's going to always be at war and, you're, and he's going to see the ramifications of war in his life forevermore. Something we learn about a king's sin here and sin in general is that sin has far-reaching consequences. And God is angered towards abuses of power. I think, the, the, I think part of the reason the sin here has far-reaching consequences is because David is abusing his power. And that angers God. Power was never meant to be used selfishly. Power was always to be used to serve and to love. And David, as his prince, in one way that God puts it in Samuel, was supposed to represent God. And yet he doesn't. He uses power selfishly. And so we see that there's far-reaching effects of David's sin. Now I think the God of the Bible who points out our sin, we often don't like that God of the Bible. I think for all of us, there's kind of this subconscious message we all have, which is kind of like, don't tell me about my sin. Don't tell me I have sin. Don't tell me about my sin. Don't tell me about what I've done wrong. It's, it's, we might not consciously think, about it, think that, but subconsciously that, that message is in our culture, that message is in our heads. And I think that message forgets that it's actually loving for the Lord to point out our sin. When the Lord points out our sin and holds us responsible for it, the Lord is saying, that's not human. That's not who you're supposed to be. That's not who I've created you to be. You're living into an anti-human way of life. And so it's loving for the Lord to point out our sin and, and hold us responsible for our sin. It's actually loving for the Lord to do this. He's pursuing David in a sense. And so Nathan says all this to David, and the first half of verse 13, we see David's response to, to Nathan saying, I know what you did. The Lord told me, and here's your punishment. Here's how David responds. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. We'll stop there. David says, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, I've really wrestled in front of you guys 
about the differences between Saul and David. They're definitely a contrast to one another. But I, if you remember in the, in the Saul part of this series, I very often found myself relating to Saul and, and seeing myself in Saul. And, and even a part of my wrestle is because I go, man, what David does here seems just as bad as anything Saul ever did. Now, Saul seems to be a bit more murderous than David for sure, but I just wrestle with this because I go, man, what David does here is evil. How can David be a man after God's own heart? If him and Saul are not that different as how everything ends up, they're not that different, how can David be a man after God's own heart? And we see how in verse 13, this line of David's is what differentiates him from Saul. David is confronted with his sin, and David says, I've sinned. I've done this thing. When Saul was confronted with his sin, he was either indifferent, or he ignored it, or he excused it. And so what we see here is for a person to be after God's own heart, when they are confronted with their sin, they accept it rather than excuse it. They confess it rather than excuse it. They repent from it rather than excuse it. They are much more willing to accept that they have sinned rather than accept themselves for sinning in some way. Because they know that the Lord is the only one that can truly accept them and love them. Even the people after God's own heart, they're going to sin. The people after God's own heart, they are going to sin. But the people that are after God's own heart, when they are confronted with their own sin, the difference between them and others is they will not excuse their sin away. And they will not accept, they will accept it for what it is. And they'll repent from it and confess it. That's what the people after God's own heart will do. I wish that the story was over here. But it's not, so let's read the rest of the story, 13b, as Nathan responds to David again, through 15. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin, you should not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David and he became sick. I really wrestle with this story in the Bible. Like, it eats me up. To quote one of my favorite theologians, this is the God I don't understand. I don't understand this God. I don't understand how the baby that was conceived due to this kind of power dynamic rape, the Lord takes away as part of his punishment of David. I don't understand that God. If we had more time, we could probably spend a whole sermon just talking about this. But let me, let me say a few things to hope, maybe help us a little bit. I think this, the first thing is, wherever the baby ended up, I think was a better place, and that baby experienced the goodness of God more than it would have ever had on earth. Right? There's this scene later in the chapter where David is mourning the loss and he says, one day I'll go to that baby, which leads me to believe that baby is in like the bosom of the Lord, like the Lord has the baby, that the baby is in heaven, if that's how you want to put it. The baby is in the presence of God. I think, I think that's true. 
And then here's the second thing, and this is kind of where the trusting part of our faith comes in. Remember, we've been talking about this for uh, the last year, but a lot of our faith is trusting in the Lord, an active trust. I think the trusting piece here is whatever God did here, I think it was just. We might not be able to see the justness of this, but for whatever the Lord did here, it was just, and it was right. And I think one day when when Jesus returns, we'll be able to see that more. But in the meantime, we kind of just have to trust and go, okay, God, you're a God of goodness. You're a God of justice. This seems wrong to me. This seems off to me, God. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you that this is just. And when you're able to show me how it's just, I'll be able to see that. And that's how our story ends today. David starts off the story abdicating his rightful responsibility. He sees Bathsheba and he lusts, so then he takes and then he rapes. His sin is potentially going to be exposed, so he covers it up with with the murder of a good man. God, through Nathan, calls him out, and thankfully David listens. And with God, we see that there are consequences for David's sin, and yet there's still also forgiveness. We, we called this series, We Want a King, because the people of Israel, they cried out for a king saying, we want a king, and then God gave them some kings. But we also called it that because deep down, each and every single one of us wants a king. We want a king to come in and rule us benevolently and do everything right and give us all goodness. We, that's deep down in us. And what this story helps us to see is that no earthly king will actually be what we want and desire. Even the best of them, even the Davids, they're not going to be, they're not going to fulfill Fully and totally what you want and desire, only King Jesus can. Only King Jesus is going to be that king that never does evil, that never sins, that always uses his power to serve and to love. We want a king, and that king is King Jesus, not King David. So church, may we see what we need to see today from this story. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, help us uh, to see what you want us to see from the story. God, help it fill in the gaps where maybe I missed something or maybe we just have more questions. God, help make up for my own distractedness in this sermon that we uh, really let this passage preach to us rather than me preach to us. God, you know what you want to show to us. You know what you want to reveal to us. And I I ask that you would reveal those things and show those things to us. God, let this be a story that draws us into your arms rather than pushes us away. Let this be a story that uh, helps us see the goodness of your son, King Jesus, the goodness of the new covenant and all that we get because of the shed blood of your son. So God, help us this morning. We love you and we need you. Amen.